0: This
1: is EM Cases, EM Quick Hits podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed, practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high-quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases.
0: Shock or hypoperfusion is a relatively common ED presentation. Of course, shock is not a diagnosis. It's really a symptom, and there are a number of different causes. We see things like anaphylactic shock and hemorrhagic shock and septic shock fairly frequently. On the other side of it, things like cardiogenic shock are much less common, and we are less comfortable taking care of that disorder. I think that's why it's important for us to focus and know how to take care of those patients when they do end up in our emergency department. And the first and most important thing is actually identifying that you're dealing with cardiogenic shock. Cardiogenic shock, what we're talking about here is hypoperfusion resulting primarily from a pump failure. Differentiating cardiogenic shock from the other forms of shock can be challenging. Your physical exam might help you. You might see altered mental status, other signs of hypoperfusion like cool skin, and of course, the patient's going to be hypotensive, but you can see how those things are not really that specific. POCUS can help to simplify this process. For any patient who comes in with undifferentiated shock, a quick ultrasound is desperately needed. This should focus on the heart, but also on the lungs and the belly, as you will sometimes find hemorrhagic shock that is disguised. There's a bunch of blood in the belly that you weren't expecting. But we can also see what's going on with the heart, what's going on in the lungs. Could there be a pneumothorax? Could there be a large pericardial effusion that's causing the shock? And I think this can really help to narrow down what we're dealing with. While you're getting that POCUS done, you're going to want an EKG as well. Obviously, a ton of information that we can get that can help to push us towards cardiogenic shock. Once we narrow it down and we are decided that we are dealing with cardiogenic shock, we do have to think about causes of cardiogenic shock. And I think there are three main ones we have to look at. Dysrhythmias, specifically ventricular tachycardia, myocardial infarction, and then valvular disruption or some kind of a valvulopathy. The key with the valvulopathies is to make the diagnosis. And this is, again, going to be tough. Yes, you could use your stethoscope and listen for an acute murmur. But sometimes that can be difficult, and our echo might be our best friend here. It's not that hard for us to get our skills up to see an acute regurgitation or an aortic lesion or a blown valve that's causing the problem. And of course, it's important to identify that because if you have an acute valvulopathy causing cardiogenic shock, you need CT surgery. It doesn't really matter what you do. You need to get that person to a surgeon to fix that lesion. Let's spend the rest of our time focused on the most common cause of cardiogenic shock, which is myocardial infarction from an acute coronary occlusion. The most common pattern that you're going to see is an anterior wall MI, but make sure to be aware of the RV infarct, which can also cause cardiogenic shock, as well as diffuse ischemia like you'd see with an AVR elevation. Ultimately, when you have a patient like this, you need to get them to cath or deliver lytics, but there is some ED treatment that may be necessary depending on how long you're holding on to that patient our focus is going to be on hemodynamic support and bridging them to the necessary intervention. If we start with our ABCs like we do for any patient, we look at airway, and these patients are going to look like they need to be intubated, but we need to be careful because they are a physiologically challenging intubation. They're going to be acidemic. They're going to be hypoxic. They're going to have blood pressure issues, obviously and we need to resuscitate prior to intubation and try to stave off that intubation in the early phases. You might need to use something like non-invasive positive pressure ventilation or even high-flow nasal cannula to get you the oxygenation you want to improve myocardial oxygen delivery without taking away those patients' endogenous catecholamines, without switching them to positive pressure ventilation, which can be really deleterious. And this brings us to now focusing on the hemodynamic parameters. And we have to remember that it's about flow and not pressure. If the BP is low, but the patient's mentating, their skin isn't too cold, they might actually be able to tolerate a lower blood pressure, in which case it might be okay to leave them where they are, maybe have a presser on standby, but not actually start it, remembering that most of our pressers are going to increase myocardial oxygen demand, which we don't want to do. If the patient has end-organ hypoperfusion, altered mental status, cool skin, well, then we're going to need to augment the pressure to augment the flow. And the ideal agent here would be something that increases contractility without increasing heart rate, a myocardial oxygen demand. And unfortunately, we don't have an ideal vasoactive substance that's going to do all of that. So what we need to do then is to balance providing some blood pressure support with making sure that we're not stressing the heart too much. And my goal when I'm looking at that vasoactive substance is to increase the diastolic blood pressure, which hopefully will increase coronary perfusion and then increase contractility. The agents I'm reaching for are the agents that I pretty much reach for in all situations with hypoperfusion, that's norepinephrine and epinephrine. Both of these, you can start at somewhere around 0.1 mics per kilo per minute, understanding that both agents are going to create more myocardial oxygen demand and more stress on the heart, but you're just doing this temporarily to bridge them to getting them to a catheterization or a cabbage or to get them to a better physiologic state for your lytics to actually be able to work. After I start my norepi or epi and I see the blood pressure start to rise, I'm going to recheck my echo and see if the patient has improved contractility with that improved blood pressure. If they do, then I'm pretty much going to stop there. If I see an increased blood pressure without really much improvement in contractility, this might be a place where I'm going to add in dobutamine, understanding that dobutamine is an inodilator. So it may increase the contractility, but it might cause more vasodilation, which could be a problem. Once I get the patient with better contractility and a better blood pressure, I might readdress or come back to giving thrombolytics. The reason not to give thrombolytics up front is that they don't work very well when the patient is hypoperfused and has an acidosis. But once you fix some of that, lytics might actually be useful. So if you can't get the patient to cath directly, if you can't get them to that cabbage, this might be the place where you would use the thrombolytics for reperfusion if you think you have that acute coronary occlusion. In addition to the pharmacologic interventions, there are some non-pharmacologic options that we have to consider. In the past, intra balloon pumps were often used here, although the studies don't really show much of an improvement in mortality with those devices. VA ECMO is an option here if you have it available in your place or in your transfer center, as it can replace the heart and act as a bridge to either transplant or LVAD. And LVAD, of course, is another option as well. And then finally, an option that the cardiologist might have is an Impella device. This is a percutaneously placed device that will replace cardiac output. It goes into the left ventricle, through the femoral artery, and in the new devices, they can give up to five liters per minute of cardiac output, which is a pretty good way to replace a heart. And again, this is going to be a bridge to more therapy down the line, whether that be the transplant or an LVAD or getting them to an ECMO center. Remember that with all of these things, you are really just trying to bridge your patient. So you need to know what your hospital can do, what your receiving center can do, and you need to make sure that you are arranging for that transfer if the patient needs transfer to get any of these interventions done.
1: All right, here's the take-home points for Swami's approach to cardiogenic shock. Rapidly identify that your patient in shock is in cardiogenic shock, first of all, using a POCUS protocol like RUSH or HIMAP. Is it ischemia? Is it a blown valve? Or is it VTAC? This will ultimately dictate the definitive treatment, of course. Next, resuscitate before you intubate. Maximize oxygenation, start norepinephrine or epinephrine at the minimal effective dose, and add dobutamine if necessary. Get the patient to a cath lab or a cardiac surgeon ASAP, and if you can't do that in a timely manner, consider thrombolytics once the BP is up. Finally, if you have access... Speak to your interventionalists about whether your patient should get ECMO or an LVAT or an impella device. Next up, we have Hania Bilowska, who's going to talk to us a little bit about the myths of radiation dose in pregnant patients.
2: Imagine you are seeing a 25 year old patient post MVC. The patient is 30 weeks pregnant, but otherwise healthy. She suffered a head injury with loss of consciousness, but now has minimal symptoms and no neurological deficits. She also has severe ankle pain with a significant deformity on exam. After a careful assessment, you determine that the only test she needs is an ankle x-ray. The patient is asking whether the x-ray is safe for her and her baby. So what can we tell her? As you may imagine, maternal illness in pregnancy is not uncommon and frequently requires radiographic imaging. Unfortunately, confusion about the safety of imaging in pregnant patients often results in unnecessary avoidance of essential diagnostic tests. While x-ray and CT scans produce ionizing radiation, the fetal exposure is almost always orders of magnitude lower than what would be needed to cause fetal harm. A bit more physics background. The amount of energy deposited in tissue is measured in grays, And dosimetry calculations can estimate fetal exposure, usually expressed in milligrays. While the exact numbers vary quite a bit in literature, all sources agree that the most conservative estimate of how much it would take to harm a fetus in any way at any stage of development is 50 milligrays, and realistically closer to 100 milligrays or more. So how much radiation exposure does the fetus get from an extremity x-ray, such as a three-view ankle? The answer is 0.001 milligrays. Remember, we are allowed up to 50 milligrays in pregnancy. That's like the study costing 0.01 cents one when you have $50 to spend. A C-spine x-ray would have the same fetal radiation exposure as an extremity x-ray, while a chest x-ray will cost us slightly more at a whopping 0.01 milligrays, which is like one cent out of $50. Incidentally, this is the same radiation exposure as a single transcontinental flight. Another way to think about this is that you would need to have at least 5,000 chest x-rays to reach a dose that could conceivably cause fetal harm. But how about CT scanning? What if your pregnant patient with a head injury post-MVC starts vomiting and you believe they require a CT scan of the head? Again, Because the radiation exposure is so far from the fetus, the fetal radiation dose from a head CT to the mom is tiny. A CT head or neck will still only result in at most 0.01 milligrays exposure. That's like saying one cent out of $50, the exact same cost as a chest x-ray. CT scans closer to the fetus, such as an abdominal CT, would result in higher exposures, but still nowhere near the 50 milligrays. With modern CT scanners, our radiology colleagues should be able to convert most CTs into a low-dose protocol. Even a CT abdomen can result in as little as 1.4 milligrays fetal exposure. And while other modalities such as ultrasound or MRI can image the abdomen without any radiation, we must consider availability, timing, and the type of clinical information we are seeking. Finally, let's imagine your pregnant patient comes back three weeks later with chest pain and shortness of breath, and you are now concerned about a pulmonary embolism. A leg doppler was done and was normal. So what's the next best test? A CT or a VQ scan? Well, as far as radiation fetal exposure, they are near identical. A VQ scan would deliver anywhere between 0.01 to 0.5 milligrays, so at most 50 cents out of that $50 we imagine, and a CT scan would deliver 0.01 to 0.66 milligrays. A CT pulmonary angiogram has the advantages of being more readily available, quicker to perform, showing alternate diagnoses, and revealing clot burden, which may guide therapy in the critically ill patient who may need surgical thrombectomy. The main disadvantage of CT is a much higher maternal breast radiation dose, 30 to 630 times more than a VQ scan. Since these numbers can be hard to remember, it's always nice to have a written resource to share with patients. Unity Health in Toronto has developed a two-page plain language handout which outlines fetal radiation exposure of various studies based on the 2017 American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists' guidelines for diagnostic imaging during pregnancy and lactation. Both resources will be available in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening, and please remember that appropriate imaging should not be withheld from a pregnant patient due to fears of radiation risk to the fetus, and that the potential harms of missed or delayed diagnosis are real and far more dangerous to our pregnant patients than the imaging study in question.
1: Things have changed a heck of a lot since we first started using CTs in the ED. Speak to your radiologists about low-dose protocols. They've revolutionized the conversation about radiation dose. All right, next up we have a CGM Just the Facts. This time, Hans Rosenberg and Michael Gottlieb are going to chat about how we can use POCUS to help us with airway management. <laughs> We always think of POCUS as playing a
3: critical role with cardiac function or volume status assessment during resuscitations, or as a diagnostic tool for the cause of the arrest. But according to your article, there is quite a role for POCUS in the management of the emergent airway. So I've got some questions for you. Yeah, absolutely. First, let's start with tube placement. How accurate is POCUS for this technique? So I think the
4: key to keep in mind here is that no test is perfect. Our gold standard at most institutions is capnography whether it be quantitative with numbers or whether you're using a color metric device, that's what we often use as our gold standard. And that works really well, except for cardiac arrests. When you look at the data in cardiac arrest, specifically among those who do not have ROSC, the accuracy is about 60 to 88%. And that makes sense because if they don't have ROSC, they're not gonna have good cardiac flow, which means they won't have enough CO2 and the accuracy of capnography goes down. And this is where ultrasound comes in really well. Ultrasound is 99% sensitive and 97% specific. And this isn't affected by whether there's cardiac perfusion or not, because it doesn't rely on CO2. It just has to look for the presence of a tube. And one of the other really nice things about this is it's fast. It takes about 13 seconds to confirm with ultrasound, and you don't have to use any positive pressure ventilation, which means you're not insufflating the esophagus and the stomach in these patients
3: because you can just confirm visually. This sounds like an excellent way to confirm tube placement. However, I'm just not that good at ultrasound. Do you mind telling me how you would perform this technique? Typically you're gonna place a linear probe right across the anterior part of the neck just above the suprasternal notch
4: and you're gonna place it transversely. And the first thing you'll see is the trachea dead center. You'll see it right behind the thyroid gland. And when you're looking for this, you're gonna look for the presence of a tube within the trachea. Now this can sometimes be a bit harder to see. So I also recommend sliding the probe laterally in each direction to look for the esophagus. The esophagus in general Is deflated. So it's relatively small and it'll look like a small circular tube. But when you have an endotracheal tube placed incorrectly in the esophagus, it's pretty obvious. It'll basically look like a miniature version of the trachea, just lateral to it. There's a few other finer points you can use here. You can use in linear or curvilinear probe. The accuracy has been demonstrated to be about the same. However, when you look at the timing and the confidence, curvilinear probe tends to take a lot longer to confirm it. And that makes sense because you're looking in a close field with a probe that's not really designed to look closely. Data has also shown that for endotracheal tube size, it doesn't matter. From ET tube size from six to eight, the accuracy stays pretty stable. And one of the finer points is whether you're gonna do the dynamic, which is the real-time assessment, or the static technique. The real-time dynamic technique is when you place the transducer just across the neck and you're gonna watch the tube pass through the cords in real time, and what you'll typically see is this flutter of activity as it passes through the vocal cords. Now it's nice because it's relatively easy to see that, However, the disadvantage is now you have a probe on the neck so if you're trying to do a difficult intubation it means it's one more thing at the head of the bed making your intubation more challenging and if you're a single provider then there's no one to actually assess the tube so what i prefer is using a static technique after the intubation is complete you come and you place the transducer across the neck and you assess for the presence of the tube and what i'll often do is i'll twist the tube side to side to create some motion artifact and studies have shown that both the dynamic and the static are equally accurate. Because if you have to choose between the two, it makes more sense to use the static
3: technique. As I've learned from your article, you can also use POCUS to perform cricothyrotomy. This is an intimidating procedure at the best of times, so I'm happy to get any tips on how to make it a little bit easier. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the best uses of POCUS
4: here, where you have a patient who potentially needs a cricothyrotomy. The patient is brought to the easy-to-palpate cartilages meaning those who you can palpate across the anterior neck, you can easily feel that cricothyroid membrane, those tend not to be the ones who actually need a cricothyroidomy. It's often those patients who have difficult anatomy who are the ones at higher risk of needing a cricothyroidomy, and that's where ultrasound really is helpful. Studies have shown that ultrasound is more accurate than the landmark-based technique and can be performed in less than 30 seconds. And how are you going to do this? First, you're going to place the transducer anteriorly across the neck in a transverse plane. And you're going to identify the thyroid cartilage, which has a triangular shape appearance. As you slide inferiorly, first you'll see a relatively larger circular ring and then a series of smaller rings. Those smaller rings are the tracheal cartilage. And as you slide back up, you're going to see that cricoid cartilage, which is a little bit wider and denser. Just superior to that is your cricothyroid membrane. So as you slide up into it, you're going to identify the cricothyroid membrane and you're going to mark it with a pen. And I'll often mark it in both planes to identify both what level it's at and where my midline is. And the other really nice benefit is it tells me what's surrounding it. I can identify if there's a vessel right in front of it, so I know where I'm going to avoid. And it might be a scenario where I go a little bit lateral because there's a vessel right there that I wouldn't have otherwise noticed without ultrasound. It also tells me where the thyroid gland is, so I make sure that I'm not going to slice through important
3: structures. You've now taught me two techniques to make the emergent airway a little bit easier using POCUS. Anything else you want the listeners to know about? The last thing to keep in mind is just
4: that difficult airway assessment. We know that the existing tools that are commonly used in anesthesia, they aren't as reliable as we think they are, and particularly in the emergent setting, and can be valuable to assess if this can be a difficult intubation using ultrasound. There are various types of of cutoffs, and in the end, it's worth looking at the original studies to assess what they're measuring and what thresholds they're using, but where I find this most valuable is in two scenarios. First, in the patient who has Strider, it allows me to assess and see if there's a mass or something subglytic that will make my intubation more difficult. Second, in kids and adults who've been intubated before, it can help me assess for subglottic stenosis. Again, identifying a scenario where it's gonna be more difficult to pass a tube than I might not be able to predict externally. And the studies have shown that among pediatric patients, ultrasound is more accurate for identifying the size of the endotracheal tube than the age over four plus four rule that we all learned in residency. As with all POCUS exams, is user-dependent. So practice is key. You don't want to be reserving this for just the really difficult intubation. Practice this on your routine intubations. So when you have a complex case, when you need to do it for an emergent cricothyrotomy, is not the first time you're doing this.
3: Great. Thank you so much for all these tips, Mike. This is going to be excellent to take to the bedside the next time I've got a difficult airway. (laughs)
1: Thanks, Dr. Rosenberg and Dr. Gottlieb. We'll have some images and video links in the show notes for these POCUS airway pearls. Next up, we've got Dr. Manaka Pei, a hematologist from McMaster University, who's the lead author on one of the first articles in Canada on vaccine-induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia, or VIPIT, following the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccination. And this is by the Drugs and Biologics Clinical Practice Guidelines Working Group and the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Board table. Now, I need to say that VIPIT is very rare, something like one in every 125,000 to one in one million people. So the message here is not to dissuade people from getting jabbed with the AstraZeneca vaccine. What we'll review here is what we need to know to identify VIPIT in the ED and how to manage it best. We'll have the decision algorithm for VIPIT in the show notes if you want to follow along. Oh, and just a reminder that the Virtual EM Cases Summit, that's our brand new conference with about 30 of the world's best EM speakers, will be on November 11th to 13th. So save those dates. And the tickets for this November EM Cases Summit will go on sale in August. Okay, here's Manaka Pay on what you need to know about VIPIT.
5: I'm a hematologist and a thrombosis physician in a large Canadian hospital. Since the news broke that the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine appeared to be associated with rare, serious blood clots, I've been working with my emergency medicine colleagues to make sure that we can quickly spot and treat this adverse event. Here's the case that we're all primed for. A 56-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with a headache and diplopia that began on Friday. She received her first dose of the AstraZeneca vaccine on Monday. The headache is persistent, and it's so severe she feels like vomiting. It came on suddenly, and nothing makes it better. She has a medical history of hypertension, no notable family history, and her only medication is hydrochlorothiazide. What's going on here, and does the AstraZeneca vaccine have anything to do with it? AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine is highly effective, and like all COVID-19 vaccines, it represents hope, a chance to protect ourselves and others and bring this pandemic to an end. But in mid-March, cases started surfacing in Europe. Patients suffering serious and aggressive clots 4 to 20 days after vaccination, cerebral sinus vein thromboses, splanchnic vein thromboses, These clots were accompanied by DIC, an indication of a vigorous prothrombotic reaction, as well as thrombocytopenia. This phenomenon has been called VIPIT, Vaccine-Induced Prothrombotic Immune Thrombocytopenia, or more recently, VIT, Vaccine-Induced Immune Thrombotic Thrombocytopenia. Administration of the vaccine seems to trigger an immune response where antibodies attack the patient's platelets, activating them to cause a prothrombotic state low platelets, and arterial or venous clots. We're still learning more about the incidence of VIPIT. Millions of AstraZeneca doses have been administered worldwide, and VIPIT appears to occur in about one in 250,000. The case fatality rate appears to be over 40%. Because VIPIT clots are treated so differently than garden variety clots, it's essential that we know how to quickly diagnose and manage them. It's not really clear what predisposes certain patients to VIPIT. We don't believe that a personal or family history of clots matter. Though most reported cases have been in younger women, men and older adults have been affected too. Patients can look a lot like the 56-year-old woman who walked into our ED. We do think that VipIt presents in a pretty stereotypical way. Symptoms of clotting start between 4 to 20 days post-vaccination. That's the time it takes to mount an immune response. The symptoms are a grab bag, but they all correspond to clots in different sites. Cerebral sinus vein thrombosis or arterial stroke, they'll present with persistent and severe headache, focal neurological symptoms, or seizures. Pulmonary embolism will present with shortness of breath and chest pain. Splanchnic thrombosis will present with abdominal pain. Patients with critical limb ischemia or DVT will present with swelling and redness in a limb or with pallor and coldness. If you see symptoms of clotting in the right time frame, 4 to 20 days post-vaccination, you should think about Vipit. The next step is to order a simple lab test that can help you rule it out, a complete blood count. If the platelet count is greater than 150 times 10 to the ninth per litre, VIPIT is unlikely. The patient's symptoms still need to be worked up, but they're unlikely to be related to the vaccine. But if the platelet count is less than 150, VIPIT is still on the table. At that point, you should order a D dimer level and a blood film. The blood film rules out other conditions that can mimic VIPIT. You should also order appropriate diagnostic imaging to investigate for blood clots. And if it's a suspected cerebral sinus vein thrombosis, that imaging includes both a CT scan and a contrast-enhanced CT venogram. This is often more available than an MRI with MR venogram, and the sensitivity is comparable. If you don't have a clot, if you don't have an elevated D-dimer, then you don't have Vipit. But if you do have these things, you've made a presumptive diagnosis and now it's time to move on to more focused testing and treatment. The confirmatory diagnosis is made by testing for antibodies against platelet factor 4. The ELISA test for heparin-induced thrombocytopenia looks for these antibodies and it appears to be really sensitive to VIPIT. It's available in most centers locally or as a send-out test and if it's positive, VIPIT is confirmed. You need to conduct functional testing as well to see if these antibodies are actually activating platelets, but this takes time, and it's usually done in a large reference lab. You shouldn't wait on this testing to start treatment of Vipid, and you shouldn't even wait for the antibody test if you've made that presumptive diagnosis. Remember, this clotting condition is aggressive, and it carries a high mortality, so you have to act fast. If you have presumptive or confirmed Vipid on your hands, call a hematologist or thrombosis specialist we can help you initiate therapy. In the case of our 56-year-old woman, she had a platelet count of 60. Her D-dimer was elevated at 13,000 and a CT venogram confirmed a cerebral vein thrombosis. She immediately received anticoagulation. And since we treat Vipit, like heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, we avoided unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparins. We believe that heparins could actually make clotting worse. The patient was stable, and so the direct oral anti-10A inhibitor was started. If she'd had renal impairment or was considered too unstable for oral medications, the hematologist could have advised on parenteral anticoagulants like argatroban. Severe clots with Vipit should also receive high-dose IVIG, one gram per kilogram of body weight daily for at least two days to dampen the immune response. Patients should not get platelets because we think that might make things worse. Our patient's platelet count rapidly came up with IVIG and by day two, she was fully anticoagulated with normal platelets and her symptoms had improved. Because this adverse event occurred following immunization, it was reported to public health. Vipid is a rare but serious vaccine-associated adverse event. Your level of suspicion should be high in any patient who presents with blood clots following the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. Focus your work up on simple, high-yield tests that will help you quickly rule out this condition. And if you can't rule it out, start empiric treatment with non-heparin anticoagulation and IVIG. Don't give platelets. And do phone your hematology and thrombosis medicine colleagues. Our radar is up for VIPIT, and we want to work with you to manage it.
1: So there you have it, a blood clot 4 to 12 days after the AstraZeneca vaccine plus a hit-like picture with low platelets, think VIPIT. All right, and now a word from our sponsor. Are you tired of the same old ER work situation? Do you feel like your dreams of being part of a high-performance team have faded? Do you wish that you lived and worked in a city surrounded by endless nature and waterfront? Well, look no further. North Bay Regional Health Centre is a shining star in Ontario's emergency medicine world. This department is on the cutting edge of emergency medicine with an excellent group of physicians and the latest and greatest SIMS educational opportunities and ED technology. Join this great emerge at a level three trauma center just three hours north of Toronto. It could be just what you need. All right, next we have the best of EM docs with Britt Long and Mike Gottlieb. They're going to give us the lowdown on the fairly new vasopressor angiotensin II.
6: Recently, the Emergency Medicine Journal published a review article on angiotensin-2 for the emergency clinician. I think we're all comfortable with norepinephrine and vasopressin, but most have never used this new vasopressor. I'm Britt Long, and Mike Gottlieb and I are going to look at the current evidence behind angiotensin-2, including dosing and potential adverse effects.
4: There's three main pathways to increase blood pressure. Now, the first one is the one we're most familiar with in practice. These are the catecholamines like epinephrine, norepinephrine, dopamine, phenylephrine. The second is the arginine vasopressin pathway, and that's where vasopressin comes in. And often, that's where we stop, with vasopressin and catecholamines on board. But there's a third pathway we often don't think about in our hypotensive patients, and that's the RAS pathway. Renin, angiotensin, and aldosterone. This is the same axis where we give ACE inhibitors to lower blood pressure. So if we can use this to lower blood pressure why can't we use it to increase blood pressure as well? And this is where angiotensin II comes in.
6: Angiotensin II binds to angiotensin receptors, resulting in smooth muscle contraction, activation of the sympathetic system, and salt and water reabsorption. All of this leads to an increase in the mean arterial pressure and effective circulating volume.
4: The big question is, what do the data show? Now, interestingly, there's data on angiotensin II dating back to the 1930s, and the first human data was from the 1960s. The original studies used bovine angiotensin II, and it uniformly increased blood pressure in patients with cardiogenic, distributive, and undifferentiated shock. But this was discontinued in 1996 when the company could no longer afford to keep making it. A synthetic human form was later developed in 2014, and they published the Athos study showing that it could reduce norepinephrine dosing. A few years later, ATHOS-3 At was published, which was a multi-center study of angiotensin-2 in patients with refractory hypotension. They had a primary endpoint of a MAP increase greater than 10 or an increase of the MAP to greater than 75 millimeters mercury by 3 hours post-intervention. They included 321 people and found that 70% met the primary outcome of improved blood pressure in the angiotensin-2 group versus 23% in the control group. And they also know a decreased norepinephrine dosing in the angiotensin-2
6: group. There have also been several post-hoc analyses which suggest that the angiotensin 2 responsiveness may be based on angiotensin 2 deficiency in patients with shock. One of these studies found that mortality was reduced in those who were critically ill with APACHE-2 scores over 30. Another post-hoc analysis found that those with acute kidney injury on hemodialysis were more likely to survive with angiotensin 2. However, these are really only hypothesis-generating as they're primarily post-hoc analyses based on subgroups. These were also very sick patient populations. Over half of the patients were on at least three pressors, and over one-third had an Apache 2 score over 30. Finally, most studies have been industry-sponsored.
4: Another thing to consider is the potential risks. While the ATHOS-3 trial didn't have any difference in the overall adverse offense between the groups, there are two issues you need to be on the lookout for. First, there's an increase in thromboembolic events in the angiotensin 2 group, and currently the FDA recommends thromboembolic prophylaxis in patients who are receiving angiotensin 2. Second, some patients may have a hypertensive response to angiotensin 2, but there really isn't a good way to predict who's going to have this response yet, so it's important to keep a close eye on their blood pressure. So let's say that I want to begin using this in my
6: ED. What do I need to know about the dosing and the duration of action for this agent? The medication has a time of onset of 60 seconds and a half-life of about 30 seconds, meaning it can be rapidly titrated and quickly wears off when the drip is stopped. The dose used in the ATHOS-3 trial ranged from 5 to 80 nanograms per kilogram per minute. Current guidelines suggest starting at an initial dose of 20 nanograms per kilogram per minute and then titrating every five minutes in increments of 15. The max dose in the first three hours is 80 nanograms per kilogram per minute, and 40 nanograms per kilogram per minute after that time period. The big question is whether this is ready for prime time. The U.S. FDA approved angiotensin II for distributive shock in 2017, but it doesn't discuss use with other agents, which is where it's been predominantly studied. There are still many questions when it comes to this medication. What about those with burns, liver failure, cardiac arrest, myocardial infarction, and even neutropenia? These patients were excluded from the trials to date on angiotensin 2. There are also case reports detailing its use in cardiogenic shock. Angiotensin 2 seems like a reasonable backup agent when we've exhausted all of our other options for refractory hypotension, but we need more data before it can be used as one of our core agents.
1: Now we're going to hear from an EM doc who's been at the top of the EM research world for more than 20 years from Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, Dr. Michael Shule. He's going to talk a bit about the safety of short-term steroid use. Now, we use steroids in the ED for tons of stuff, asthma and COPD, sick COVID pneumonia patients, septic patients with adrenal suppression, gout, some rashes, the list goes on. So we really need to understand the evidence on safety. Take it away, Dr. Shul.
7: We prescribe all sorts of medications in the emergency department. And one of the more common types of medications we prescribe are steroids. We generally prescribe relatively short courses of steroids for things like asthma or COPD, uh, even single doses for croup or a couple doses maybe for pharyngitis. We generally think of these short courses of steroids as being relatively safe, although we know that longer courses, and I'm talking weeks or months or even years, can be associated with significant adverse effects. So when a study came out last year that was featured in EM Pearls on the association between short treatments with oral corticosteroids and adverse events, it really caught my eye. This study came out of Taiwan and it was based on data from 2013. What's interesting about it is that it's a population level database study, which is the kind of study that I love since it's what I do. And basically Taiwan, which has a terrific universal healthcare system and really very advanced universal health data was able to look at the entire population of Taiwanese and their experience with short treatments with steroids. They looked at three types of adverse events following treatments with steroids, GI bleeds, sepsis, and heart failure, in the 5 to 30 days after the prescription for steroids, as well as in the 31 to 90-day period after the prescription for steroids. The patients in the study, and there were over 15 million persons in the study, age 20 to 64, of whom about 2.6 million received a prescription for steroids. These patients averaged about 38 years, about 55% were female. The vast majority, over 84%, had no significant comorbidities. And the median duration of steroids in this population was about three days. So it kind of sounds quite a bit like the types of patients that we might prescribe steroids for For short periods of time in the emergency department. A really interesting aspect of the study was that they used self-controls. In other words, these patients were compared to themselves in the period before they got the steroids and after they got the steroids, which enables you to control for all sorts of variables that you wouldn't be able to measure typically. And essentially, you're saying, what is the risk of a particular individual's Uh, risk of having a GI bleed or sepsis or heart failure when they're not getting steroids compared to a period of time when the same person is getting steroids. Well, what did they find? Well, at face value, it sounds kind of worrisome. They found that prescriptions for steroid bursts or these small prescriptions for steroids are associated with a 1.8 to 2.4 fold increased risk for GI bleeding, sepsis, and heart failure within the first month after initiation of drug therapy. That's a pretty big increase, isn't it? That's an 80% to 240% increase in the risk of these pretty severe side effects. And so you sort of say, hey, I, you know, that's kind of worrisome. I better think twice about prescribing steroids. But let's take a closer look. So let's take a look at those absolute risks that they found. Well, let's start with GI bleed, which was the most common risk following a short course of steroids. They found a rate of 27.1 per thousand person years among patients who were given a short course of steroids. Hmm, 27.1. That sounds like quite a few events, doesn't it? But it's per 1,000 person years. Now, that means... If you took a 1,000 patients and you put them on steroids for an entire year, you'd get 27.1 GI bleeds that would be associated with that. Now, we're not talking about putting patients on steroids for an entire year. We're talking about putting them on steroids for a couple of days. So it doesn't really make sense to express the risk in that way. But we can convert it to doing some mathematical shenanigans to a a measure that makes a little bit more sense, such as person weeks, for example, like the uh, putting a certain number of patients on steroids for a week, which in fact is still longer than most of these courses were. But nonetheless, when you look at it in terms of person weeks, what you'd find is that the risk of GI bleeds was actually 0.05% per week, meaning that of the patients who were put on steroids for short courses, 0.05% of them got a GI bleed. Well, what was the rate in the control group? What was the absolute rate in the control group? The same patients when they weren't on steroids turns out to be 0.03%. So if you take patients who are not on steroids and follow them for a week, take enough of them, you will find that 0.03% of them also get a GI bleed. So that is an absolute risk difference of 0.02% or about an 80% relative risk difference. For sepsis and CHF, the absolute risks were actually quite a bit lower, but the absolute risk differences were higher. Let's take sepsis, for example. The absolute risk among patients getting steroids was 0.003% per week. Whereas in the patients not getting steroids, the risk of sepsis was 0.002% per week, a difference of 0.001% per week. And in CHF, the difference was even smaller. So all this to say that the risk differences when expressed in absolute terms are pretty small, but the huge sample size in in this study means that even small differences are magnified and can become statistically significant relatively easily. But what it shows is the risk of steroids even in short courses is not zero And so as a clinician, we have to balance that against the benefits of steroids. Do we find that in patients who have the kinds of asthma exacerbations that require steroids, that the benefits outweigh the risks? Or the child with croup, or the patient with COPD, or the pharyngitis case, for example. My belief is that in most of those cases, the benefits of A short course of steroids would outweigh the risks that were identified in the study. And I wouldn't consider this study to be practice changing. Anytime you're presented with a risk difference, the first thing to ask is, is it a relative risk difference or is it an absolute risk difference? If I said there's a 100% increase in the risk, that sounds pretty bad. But if it's a relative risk increase of 100%, then you really need to know what the absolute risk is. If the absolute risk of the outcome was, let's say 0.1%, then a 100% increase in risk would only take you up to 0.2%. Still a pretty rare outcome. A small difference in absolute risk difference of 0.1%, but a 100% increase in the relative risk.
1: Thanks, Dr. Shul, for that excellent explanation and importance of the difference between relative and absolute risk, and to give us a bit of an idea of the safety of short-term steroid use. All right, let's do a review of the six quick hits we've heard on this EM Quick Hits podcast. Number one, cardiogenic shock with Swami. First, use POCUS to help you identify the cause of shock and ask yourself, is this from ischemia, a valve problem, or from VTAC? Be sure to resuscitate before you intubate these patients. Start norepinephrine and epinephrine. And if they aren't working, add dobutamine and consider thrombolytics for the STEMI patient in cardiogenic shock. Also think about getting them to the cath lab or a cardiac surgeon, depending on the cause, as well as ECMO, LVAT, or an impella device. The next quick hit was imaging in pregnancy. So the radiation dose of x-rays is pretty much negligible. You generally don't need to worry about the radiation from x-rays in pregnant patients. And for the CT, the newer excellent low radiation dose protocols are also really quite safe in pregnancy. So don't withhold imaging for pregnant patients when missing the diagnosis carries potential morbidity and mortality and have some numbers and easy ways of explaining radiation dose accessible on your phone for that good old shared decision-making. The third quick hit was on POCUS as an aid in airway management. POCUS is very accurate for tube placement, for landmarking a crike, and it can help with difficult airway assessment as well. So if you practice these, you could integrate them into your practice and make your airway skills really slick. The fourth quick hit was on Vipit, which is basically a blood clot, plus a thrombocytopenia like you'd see in HIT. So for patients who've received the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine 4 to 20 days before symptom onset, who present with, say, a severe headache or focal neurologic symptoms, seizures, uh, blurred vision, shortness of breath, chest pain or belly pain, a DVT picture or an ischemic limb picture... First, if they have had the AstraZeneca vaccine recently, first look at the platelet count. If it's less than 150, get a D-dimer and a blood film. The blood film should be normal in Vipit. And then imaging based on clinical suspicion. If these are consistent with a presumptive diagnosis of Vipit, call your hematologist, proceed to HIT testing, and start a 10A inhibitor. Finally, get the patient admitted for IVIG. Next, the new vasopressor angiotensin-2 looks promising, but not quite ready for prime time. Keep your ears and eyes open for more studies on angiotensin-2. And lastly, short-term steroid use in the ED is pretty safe. And a nice EBM fact, it's the absolute risk we need to be scrutinizing, not so much the relative risk. Again, don't forget that the tickets for the EM Cases Summit are big conference with 30 of the best em speakers in the world will go on sale in august and save those dates for the conference november 11th 12th and 13th so until next time take it easy